Hello yeah. and welcome to a Christmas edition of Over the Page, the Vale of Glamorgan Libraries podcast. And if you don't know where the Vale is, it's the nice pit between Cardiff and Bridgend. With me, Julia, and... And me, Ben. Thank you very much. And uh, as it's Christmas, we, uh, we're going to be diving into the tradition of the Christmas ghost story. And who better to start us off but the master of the Christmas ghost story, M.R. James. And to talk about, to talk about all things spooky and James related, uh, we're joined by performance storyteller, Robert Lloyd Parry. Hi, Robert. Hi there. How are you doing? You're right. Uh, so, well, I was going to say a quick, you know, for those people who haven't encountered Mr. James, that he's probably now best remembered for his uh, ghost stories. Although, was at the time a celebrated Cambridge academic, amongst mm. other things. Well, to give it some context, he um, he wrote his stories for a small gathering of um, academics and undergraduates called the Chit Chat Club. And yeah, his- actually, I'll t- just there's a bit of a misapprehension about this. The first two stories he ever wrote, he wrote for a society called the Chit Chat Society. He, he read the- these are the first two that we know he wrote. The first two that were published in magazines, uh-huh. Canon Albrecht Scrapbook and the, and uh, Lost Hearts, and we know that. He read these to the Chit Chat Society, which was a Cambridge University Society, on the 28th of October, 1893. But those are the only ones he read to the Chit Chat Club. The, the, the subsequent stories weren't anything to do with the Chit Chat Society. They were, they were read mainly at Christmas to friends who gathered around his rooms in King's College. So the Chit Chat Society is, is important, but a, a little, its importance is overstated slightly. That, that was the, the big beginning of it as far as we know but um it went on far beyond the the chit chat i mean you spend your life delivering ghost stories in the jamesian style and quite Mm. happily chilling people to the bone um why do you why do you think we sign up for these things you know what where's the pleasure in this oh and why at christmas i mean you know we should be at home i mean this question of chilling people to the bone. Some people are scared by Mr. James' stories. Others are not. But if you're not scared by them, then they're not failing, and you're not failing as a listener. That's not the only effect they have. Um, For a start, they are funny. I mean, one ought to laugh at these. They're peppered with jokes. Um, Some jokes that are simply too dry to have kind of, you know, survived today. But but plenty of jokes, plenty of funny situations in them. Um, You know, he wrote them as party pieces, and they they were presented as at convivial uh-huh. occasions. People were drinking uh, spiced beer and, you know, taking snuff. And, you know, these are Christmas party pieces. Um, people would have been laughing at the, the kind of the Latinisms and the references to history and so on, as well as kind of caricatures of people from Emma Jones' own social circle that kind of crop up in them, I think. But also, of course, they they, they are supposed to thrill and frighten as well. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been doing these for years. So, I mean, there's a particular pair of stories, the first ones I ever committed to memory. I've been performing them for 15 years. And, you know, of course they don't scare me anymore. But I still actually enjoy them very, very much for the, the pacing, for the, the characterization, for the scene setting. Um, you know, they're terribly well-told tales. And I think that's the, the appeal of them. Um, you know... Uh-huh. In the same way that Conan Doyle is still read and celebrated today, incredibly well-told, constructed tales. 
Um, yeah. The scares are kind of, you know, almost in- incidental. So that, that's rather stated. But, you know, if you're not scared by an Amber James story, don't be put off Amber James. There are other <laughs> pleasures to be had, I think. Why we do it at Christmas, I think, you know, because at Christmas it's dark outside, people gather around the same source of light. It's natural to imagine what's happening under the shadows, and it's natural also to, to tell stories to each other, you know, gathering around the fire, telling stories, using the imagination has been going on as, as long as fire and men have been, have been going, mm-hmm. I think. And, you know, Christmas, families, people are reunited at Christmas for a short while who haven't necessarily met for a particularly, you know, for, for long. And, you know, they, they share stories. They, they, they like to entertain each other. They like to share a kind of common, common experience. I think you're absolutely right with that. There's, there's, something, there's something really appealing, isn't there, about, um, about just creating this kind of cosy, safe atmosphere and, yeah. and, and then just, just so that you're, you're, you're right into your comfort zone. And, and like you say, with, you know, with all the kind of trappings of, uh, you know, of home and spiced beer and snuff, I mean, that sounds brilliant. And then, <laughs> and then just kind of just, just very sort of tentatively branching into, into this kind of dark, spooky kind of place where you know that something, nothing, nothing can really hurt you, but you can, it's almost like you're looking at it through glass or something. It's like looking at something a little bit dangerous from, the, yeah, you know, from yeah. behind some, the safety of, you know, of a, of a barrier. I think there is, I think there is that with some MRGM stories, but, with, you know, with a couple of them, there is real, you know, the, the, there is real, there is real jeopardy involved for the, the people, you know, taking part in it. And we, we do witness um, on a couple of occasions in Camp Magnus and in A Warning to the Curious, you know, there is violent, yeah. unfair death takes place. And, you know, the, there isn't a kind of um, much pleasing terror. Pleasing terror is the word that's often used, to, the kind of phrase often employed by M.R. James. Um, but, you know, some of, some of them are darker than others. Some of them impart a more um, sombre tone, I think, mm. than others. Yeah, I hadn't. I, I suppose I hadn't really thought of that until until you mention it now. But th- there's there's a there's a real kind of contrast um, in with in the stories in that in that some of them are more about that kind of mm, slightly more pleasing terror, the kind of creeping sort of psychological, you know, just a little frisson of kind of spookiness. And then mm. yeah, there, there's there's a few stories that are really just visceral mm. and kind of violent and, mm. and you know, like you say, Count Magnus and like Lost Hearts as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean lo- lo- I I say Lost Hearts is, is is more one of those from which you, you have a, a slightly safe distance. Um it's something that happened, you know, quite a long time ago and um Yeah. Uh and and also it's kind of a bit baroque. It's a bit absurd. The the actual, you know, what's going on is is almost too, too horrible to be taken seriously. Yeah, um, I think you know, there's a bit of a laugh to be had at the idea of this guy who kills his nephew to eat his heart in order to attain eternal life. Um, okay, it's horrible, but it is quite funny as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of it's, it's sort of it's sort of gothic and funny at the same time, isn't it? Well, that's the thing. I I, I think it is. I I, th- I think you know, there's there's more. There is much more humour in these stories than uh, perhaps people kind of expect or, or, or give credit for. I think, and I think you're right about the. I think that's something really nice about them, actually, that you do get little, you do get little flashes of of kind of James as a as a person. I think, and you you know you get you get a sense of of him as a person, just kind of 
not necessarily trying to produce something that's that's you know great literature or anything, but just just really amusing his friends. So you think because um, they're all very fairly academic characters. They're certainly all male mm. characters, aren't they? Mm. I mean, you know, the women don't really get much of a look in. They might no. pass the odd cup of tea, but, you know, no more than that. The odd <laughs> crucifix every now and again. Here, love, take this. But, um, but yeah, so do you think the, the characters um, are his friends? Well, obviously well I, I, yeah, him. I mean, you know, I, he, he, he spent all his life in academic institutions. Um, and, yes, yeah, so the... the he, he, the, the characters that he writes about are their characteristics, their manners of speech and so on, I'm sure, are based upon people that he knew. I'm not sure. I can't think of this on my head whether there's any kind of direct um, portraits of particular people he knew within the stories. But they're, they're more kind of composites of the, the academic types, the, the slightly un, unworldly academic types with whom he, he spent so much time. And he was a great people. You know, he, he was a great observer of people. He was a great mimic. Um, you know, he was known among his friends as a mimic of his other friends and so on. You know, he, he would have the room in stitches, just kind of improvising um, monologues delivered by, by other people. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, I'm pretty sure that the original listeners would have had more of an inkling than we do about who might be represent. you know, who, who Deniston or Anderson or uh, Williams, who they may resemble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, along with I mean, along with the, the in jokes, there there is a real sense of that of that kind of performance element as well. That he seems to have he, it, it was almost as if he, he's kind of constructed you know, those whole passages, especially when he's dealing with you know sort of maybe working class characters or something, or college servants or, or kind of you know <laughs> con- country types, and he's he's almost kind of written it as. As a as an opportunity for him to oh I can I can do my my sort of my funny yokel voice or something in, for this that, one. that's absolutely right and for me that's one of the one of the more tedious things about M R James I think he goes too far sometimes the I think in casting the runes which is an excellent story it just it has these Cockney tram drivers and it just goes on for far longer than it should merely because M R James was proud of his Cockney accent. <laughs> <laughs> but I like I like the idea that that everybody else in the room would have just rolled their eyes at that while he was completely yeah, just sort of maybe, oh, maybe you like you like this I can here's my Cockney <laughs> tram driver again and everyone yeah, goes oh right. not again. <laughs> I like that idea too. Yeah. <laughs> um I was I, I was going to say there's um there's a there seems to be quite a theme of uh, running through some of the the stories at least of um of kind of leaving things alone I think and um you know and kind of not disturbing you know not disturbing the past leaving things where they lie do you mm. think um you know and 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 the fact that often his protagonists don't do that whereas with you know stories like oh, oh whistle and I'll come to you and warning yeah. to the curious and that sort of thing. Um, which are all about the finding of some kind of artifact and, you know, taking it away from the place where it's been. Um, do you think that that kind of reflects James's own worldview and his own, um, or, you know, his kind of slightly conservative nature? Um, well, I mean, well, I, I don't know. I, I think there may be two things. His conservative nature is undeniable. I don't think for a minute he thought that one should leave things alone quite the opposite he, he spent his life delving into the past trying to shed light upon obscure um avenues of of, of the past um medieval manuscripts apocryphal literature you know he, he worked 
physically as an archaeologist. When he first left Cambridge after finishing his degree, he, he, he conducted archaeological digs in Cyprus. and they, they weren't particularly interesting. I don't think he enjoyed it very much. But, you know, he, he was there supervising um, digging and so on. And throughout his life, he was kind of trying to discover um, lost text and so on. So, no, he wasn't at all in his stories preaching a, 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 a kind of um, a doctrine of leave the things alone. You don't know what you'll dig up. Quite the opposite. But as he did this, as he was involved in his own researches, you know, his wonderful imagination was at play. And he realized very strongly, he, he, he had everyday experience of the power of the past, the, 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 the power of you know, the, the, the way that the past can live within the present. And I think it just, you know, he, he for the sake of entertainment, he allowed his imagination to, um, to think what happens if it was dangerous to dig up this thing or to acquire this ancient book or you know to it's he, he plays what if a lot of the time but that's not to say that he believed it yeah it's amazing you know when you think of as you say a a warning to the curious and the the east anglian crown and this to a modern audience they're probably not going to put two and two together but this was pre sutton who just, yeah, just imagine right. if he'd have found that that would have been yeah. amazing yeah <laughs> I know it's, it, it's 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 weird because it's only you know it's very much where very near Sutton Hoo, and, just um, down the road, <laughs> and it was only you know Sutton Hoo was only a couple of years after he died, I think, wasn't it? And I agree, yeah. Sutton Hoo, Sutton Hoo would have perhaps he did know more than than we think he knows. Perhaps there was something, you know. Perhaps he was forecasting. Well, you know, I I it I think it's generally accepted that he he did invent the story of the three hidden crowns, but that you know who, who knows what folk stories might have been going around Oldborough when he was a little boy holidaying there. You know, something may have just lodged in his mind and blossomed in his imagination. And that, that's how we get that wonderful. It's, I mean, it's such, such a believable bit of folklore, isn't it? The oh, gosh, powers. yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Really I, I, I really wish it were true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you see, would M.R. James the professional, M.R. James the academic, would he have... Um, thought that you should, if, you, if one discovered that crown that you should leave it alone no he wouldn't he'd have thought it should be in the british museum i think because i was i was going to ask whether you thought that in, he was in any way kind of using the stories as a as a, an opportunity to kind of explore things that actually scared him you know i'm thinking mm. particularly of i mean I, he was he was famously arachnophobic i think wasn't he mm. and, you know i'm just thinking that spiders kind of a, a, a appear in several of the stories especially you know the the end of the ash tree and uh he was he was again writing about what he knew and he yeah. knew that spiders were absolutely terrifying <laughs> as do i <laughs> i'm with you there <laughs> i'm not i'm not necessarily i don't think i've ever been particularly scared of spiders but th having said that i might be if they were the size didn't it, i think he describes them as like the size of a cat or something at the end it's the size story. of a child's head yeah, well, I think I think that might change yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if if they were hairy and poisonous as well, absolutely. Ooh, yeah, horrible. But, yeah, but he's writing at a time <laughs> when um, I used to work. I used to work in a museum um, with wonderful collections. So they were receiving things like bird-eating spiders, and yeah, they right, are yeah. they are huge. They're about the size of a dinner plate, um, <laughs> and you know, yeah. in the collections, Ooh. it was like I. Oh, really don't want to open some of these boxes you know i'm I'm fine with the skellies and the but it, <laughs> it was always one of the thoughts that i you know 
you know, have we picked up the wrong, has somebody at some stage picked up the wrong thing here? You know, is there, uh, you know, working with extensive collections, they could have opened any box and, you know, all I had to do is open the wrong box and cuss the life, you know. But uh, that would be a great spiders. story. You want, you want to write that story, the wrong box. Well, it's, yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> but it was always worse with the bird-eating spiders. And I, I'm no natural historian. <laughs> Luckily, I had one of those <laughs> on the team. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> hideous. But it was, I mean, you know, we are talking about a time where things were being frantically discovered, mm. frantically brought back to the yeah. UK, rightly or yeah. wrongly, whatever the opinion is, from all over the place. So, um, and, and he was part of, you know, he was, the, he was the director of the Fitzwilliam Museum for several years. Kind of in the either side of the turn of the century, and um, yeah, mm-hmm. um, you know, he 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 had to deal with you know mummies and stuff like that. No. Mummies never really make it into his, his no, fiction, they, which is but a I can see why because you know the whole um, catalogue of uh, Anglo-Saxon and Norse and Celtic stories are just um, yeah, the mummies are there and and they are lovely, but and of course the um. Someone pointed this out to me the other day that the the um because the anniversary is coming up the the Tutankhamun stuff all the kind of the curse of King Tut that all <laughs> happened a couple of years before a warning to the curious was written and published so you know was this yeah. idea of um the cursed archaeologist did that lodge in his mind and you know slightly inform that story possibly I'm sure he was if not kind of intimately familiar with I'm sure he was on terms with. So he drew on his academic um, uh, research, certainly. I'm finding it difficult to marry up his um, very religious attitudes to the whole belief in the supernatural. Um, So um, because he's very, I mean, his parent was, his father was a vicar. His brother became archdeacon. He was a very religious man, um, Mm. as all of his family were. And yet here he is peddling um, ghost stories, you know, entertaining with his ghost stories. So yeah. how, did, how did he marry that up with his... Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's difficult to... I mean, it's not a question of marrying them. They're entirely separate things. Mm. Um, his stories do not reflect his religious beliefs. Well, I don't know that he believed in those demons that he... That, that he I'm not sure he believed in the, the demon who appears in Canonadic Scrapbook. No. He was, you know, he was able to... He, he, could, he could separate... Um, his faith from works of fiction yes. in a way that many people find difficult. Yes. You know, people get offended by works of fiction because it offends their faith. I think M.R. Jones was simply able to say, right, well, this is a work of fiction. This doesn't, ref- this is not a statement of belief. This isn't a credo. This is um, something to entertain my friends with. Yeah. I don't believe it's true. Yeah. I don't think he believed in the ghosts that he wrote about. Did he believe in the supernatural? Did he believe in a, a spirit world? Perhaps he did. But um, and perhaps that's connected with his religious belief. But I don't think, you know, people also say well, there are so many evil vicars in his work. I don't <laughs> think that's because he thought vicars are evil. He just thought it's funny to have an evil vicar. <laughs> do you think? Um, do you think you 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 would like to have met him, Robert? Oh well, I mean, because I mean, yeah, I've become far more involved with him than I ever thought I would. Yeah. So yet now, I'd, I would absolutely love to meet him. And, you know, I'd probably have to brace myself <laughs> for the fact that we might not like each other. But, um, <laughs> you know, yes. Gosh, I'd love to meet him. Yeah. It would be then again, if you remember Count Magnus, 
the guy who's researching Count Magnus says, oh, I'd love to meet you, Count Magnus, and that leads to the most terrible trouble. So oh. I don't, I'm not... I'm not going to wish too devoutly to meet M.R. James. Yeah, for what you wish for, yeah. It would be... be like the monkey's paw, you know. <laughs> I think I'm thinking time, of meeting the spectre of him, you know, really. Yeah, 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 the spectre, yeah. Well, that, that's, what I, that's what I dread. <laughs> so do you believe in ghosts then? No, I don't particularly. <laughs> well, uh, you know, no, 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 not like that. Um, no. But you know, I th- and um, I don't know whether Am- James may have believed it. He don't know whether he did or not. He he was kind of always a bit non-committal about whether he. I think he, he did say, if you present me some indisputable evidence or something like that, exactly, I'm, I should yeah. admit it. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's kind of that's a sensible attitude to take. That's and that's attitude that I take. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I I have had no no meaningful experiences that could be called ghostly. Yeah. I mean, it must be it must have been shocking and difficult talking. I mean, talking of a man out of time. So he died in 1936. So lived through mm. the First World War mm-hmm. um, and coming from an all male institution. Uh, it must have been deeply emotionally difficult and tragic for him watching. Um, I mean, he would have been in his 50s. He never went to war, but watching all his mm. friends or, or his students. Yeah. Um, just you know the and the tragic loss of life it was incredibly yeah. hard for him yeah I, I, and i think that's reflected in in the story of warning to the curious which was written just after the first world war mm-hmm. um but he was involved um because immediately after the war in 1918 actually just before the end of the war i think he he left cambridge after having been there for about 35 years and he he took up the provost shop of eton uh and of course eton it's astonishing. If you look at the Eton War Memorial, just from the school, more boys than most town, you know, towns and yeah, villages yeah. lost citizens. I mean, it was an astonishing slaughter of old Etonians was the First World War. And he was involved in kind of commemorating the, um, the, the, their lives. And he, he designed and commissioned a window for the chapel at Eton College, which is oh. actually a really rather moving piece of work. And it's... Um, and that I think that certainly reflects his, his the depth of his religious faith. If you look at that window, and he he was, I mean, what one thing he did during the war is he was vice chancellor of Cambridge University during the war, which you know was a, a great responsibility. Um, and one thing he did was he he helped he eased the passage of um, of Belgian scholars in occupied Belgium. He kind of gave them refuge in Cambridge colleges and so on, and, and you know he kind of helped the European mm-hmm. academic community, for which he was kind of awarded the, um, he was made a knight of the Order of Leopold or Belgium or something like that. He got some major Belgian kind of, you know, decoration after the war. You know, he, he, he very much, I think he thought, and I don't know that by the end is he changed his mind about this, I think he thought the war had to be fought and that it was a, a war um, against, and again, uh, it was a war in the cause of good mm-hmm. and that God was on the side of the, of the allies. I think he thought that. Well, um, hang on a minute. This is a Christmas crop. Let's lighten the tone here. It's a Christmas yeah, podcast. Yes, exactly. so do, do you have, do you have a favorite? Do you, I mean, I know it's like probably for you, it's picking one of your children. Do you have a favorite <laughs> MRJ? I, I, people often ask me that. And I often say it is like picking one of your children. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I've got two. Okay. So one of them, which is, closest to my heart uh the one that i kind of i love as a child is canon albrick scrapbook because 
that was the first one I ever read and the first one I ever committed to memory and first one I performed. And I'm just so familiar with it. I, I, I love it. it. You know, after all this time, I must have performed it hundreds of times. Um, and I, I still enjoy it almost as much as ever. Yeah. Um, I think it is, it is a perfect M.R. James story. As for what is probably his best, um, his strongest story, I think, is A Warning to the Curious. So I think they're the two that I would choose as my favourites. Um, but it's very hard because there are so many good ones. And, you know, my, my mind on this probably will change according to the yeah. weather. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What, what are your, each of your favourites? I, I see now. I've just um, asked Ben this, and then he returned the question, and I said it was the, the mezzotint, and he said, mm. oh, you know, but that's that's the one, you know, where they don't go out. It's the one where they all stay at home, and, and, and the peril is at home. Why do you like that one? I think there's probably, you know, it's, I think that's why, because mm. there's, an, there's an object, and it's, and it's static it's a picture it shouldn't mm -hmm. nothing you're safe with a picture nothing ever happens to a picture this is all good and that's the point i think it was mm -hmm. one of the first ones i'd read um and a very yeah. great many years ago now but um and as a like teenager so yeah. but i think you know that's the and the fact that everyone can see this happening it's not just it's not just you you know because mm -hmm. okay with yeah. um warning to the curious it could be, you know, has he gone yeah. mad? There's no absolute evidence to say that there was this following figure. It's the no. corner of his eye. We all see things in the corner of our eye, you know, yeah. but with the mezzotint, definitely yeah, happening. there's definitely something going on there. And I find that a bit kind of um, deliciously unnerving, I would uh, say. That's, that's very interesting, yeah. I've not thought of it like that as a kind of contrast with the, the corner of the eye stuff. Yeah, you're right, it's right in front of you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I mean, I, th I think it's yeah, it's it's a very strong story. And on another I think, day, I might have said that was my favourite. Yeah, <laughs> I think um, I've probably I, I I think I'd find it really difficult to, to pick one like you, but um, I've one that that springs to mind. I've always loved um, number thirteen. I think that was probably that was probably one of the first stories I ever read, and. I love the, I, I find that's, that's got a really kind of, that's got that lovely sense of kind of creeping dread and, and, and a sense of, a real sense of the uncanny as if something, you know, the first time that he notices that the room isn't there and suddenly it's, oh, and there's something mm. not quite right. But I particularly love, I love, I think M.R. James in, in general at his best is he, he, he's so beautifully descriptive, you know, mm -hmm. and he, he creates such fantastically vivid images so that you're right there and you can see it in your mind's eye. Um, and I love the description in, in number 13 when, um, you know, Mr. Anderson is in his room and it's, it's in the evening and he's looking out the window and he can see the, the light from the room next door being cast onto the building opposite. And he can see this man kind of, just doing this sort of crazy wild dancing and and it's yeah. and it's really unnerving and then all of a sudden he hears the the laugh you know and it's and the mm. way that it's described as um as a like a winter wind in a hollow chimney you know and it's and and then it was a really horrible sound and i can mm. and that makes me shiver every time oh does it it makes you shiver okay ah. it's, it i can <laughs> just the thought of of kind of being in a in this in in a hotel in a strange place or so away from yeah. home or something and then this you suddenly become aware that oh this there's something weird going on next right next door and and then yeah. 
the fact that I think there's something very sinister about a laugh. I think laughing could be so. I think Mr. James had just got a really good line in laughter because yeah. there seems to be a hollow laugh, a breathless laugh, a yeah. throatless a laugh, in a metallic laugh. Uh, in any every story, does every story yeah. have a laugh? I mean, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, an- another very thing. Interesting, I- yeah. Another thing I love about that story, just just near the end, when they're about to, you know, they're they're about to sort of break down the door of uh, of number thirteen, and I can't remember what, one of the characters sort of turns and he has his back to the door, and then it it just opens a crack and and this horrible kind of hand just comes, you know, in ragged yellow linen, just just reaches out and kind of grabs at him, and I always. When I when I read that when I was younger and I always used to think what 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 is it then what what is the thing that's in it what, what would happen what would have happened if he if he'd been dragged inside you know what horrors were inside yeah. that door yeah yeah uh, well that's an excellent case of that being a favourite as well I, yeah. I, I agree <laughs> <laughs> well I I don't know should I spring this one on you so what um what book will you be reading this uh christmas then do you sit down and, and read a, a new ghost story or, or are you going to read something totally different well i don't I, I i'll you know i someone recently gave me an anthology of scottish ghost stories so i may kind of dip into that but, um, the, the book i'm reading at the moment is kind of peripherally related to mr james in that um another thing mr james did some of his lesser known writings he translated the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen from the Danish into English. And that kind of, I was, I was reading some of them the other day. And so I'm actually, I will be reading a, a biography of Hans Christian Andersen over Christmas. Oh, yeah. I do say I am a guilty Christmas pleasure of mine to dip into an MR James. But you've got a, um, a broadcast, haven't you, on Christmas Eve? Yes, I have. Yeah. So I'm I can treat myself to that instead, you see. Um, which will be, you know, that would be an excellent. Well, in fact, you two, it'll be Christmas Eve will be a great treat for you two because I'm doing number thirteen and the BBC is doing the mezzo tint. Oh, oh, fantastic! Fabulous! Yeah, oh, yeah. So yeah, whammy to look forward to then. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's 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 Christmas solved then, isn't it? Really? Absolutely. I mean, that's what what better way to get into the Christmas spirit? Yeah, I mean, that. I do remember those uh, early. Were they BBC films? Yes, of mm. with the MR James, and they were. Yeah. Um, a story for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. were brilliant. They were. Well, this this Center is a new one of those. Um, made my Mark Gatiss, you know, from the oh, League of brilliant. Gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that'll be that's something to look forward to, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Robert. That's it's been fantastic to chat to you. Oh, it's been great. Thank you for well, thank you for having me, and it's been good to hear your thoughts on the subject as well. So, um, Merry Christmas! Yes, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Happy Christmas to you too. Thank you, and you, Robert. Thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to that broadcast at Christmas of the Mezzotint on BBC. Absolutely, it's going to be great, isn't it? Really get set the tone. So, and how do we catch up with Robert's broadcast as well? Um, well, if you'd like to check out more of Robert's stuff, uh, including that broadcast and uh, some other live performances that he's uh, doing, um, you can check out his website. It's uh, nunkie.co.uk. That's N-U-N-K-I-E. And he's got a YouTube channel as well. He has, yes. Yeah, um, which is well worth a look at. So uh, what have you got lined up for Christmas then? Have you got your Christmas books ready? 
Um, well, at the moment, I'm reading uh, Philip Pullman's uh, Northern Lights. Um, I suddenly realised that it's uh, it's a, a trilogy that I've I've seen and been aware of for years and years. Of course, I have, but um, I never read them. So and. Uh, of course, the BBC have done a new adaption of them, and I don't want to watch that until I've actually read the books. I am excited to watch. You are not allowed to watch the television programmes before you. You know, as a Absolutely. that's the library law. I'm afraid you know <laughs> you have to read the books first. Absolutely, but it's snowy and it's got polar bears. It it has, um, and it it does actually have quite a wintry feel. It's um, I think so. Yeah, it's I'm enjoying it so far anyway. And uh, do you I'm, just have a fetish for sort of Oxbridge College? then because that's kind of you know you've got your mr james and that's cambridge so you're making it up with the oxford one are you um yeah i'm just i'm just redressing the balance now. <laughs> <laughs> uh what about you what are you going to be reading this christmas um oh, well i kind of reread at christmas so i've got a long car journey so i'm probably put on the box of delights oh um and re-listen to that it's a bit of a family tradition right um and I love it. It's great. Have you read it? I haven't. It's um, by John Macefield. It's it's well, it's really old now. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's something that's something else to put on the list to check out. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's got one of the best endings ever. Um, but I certainly remember. I remember a TV series as a child, which I have rewatched as an adult, and um, thought, my goodness, you know, what did we watch? But it is brilliant. It's a brilliant book. Yeah. Excellent. And of course, Christmas is the perfect time for revisiting family traditions. Well, yes, I think. Um, <laughs> That's <yeah>. very cute. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've already previously I've confessed that I like Christmas, so that's good. I've, um, I'm over that. I've seen the public, so that's OK. Um, yes, yeah, so looking forward to some time off, looking forward to some snow. I know we've already had snow this year, but I really am looking. I want. I want snow. I didn't get it. I feel I made it. I always hope for snow because I I love snow and that's my that's my one slight regret at living this far south and this close to the sea is that it uh, very rarely properly snows. Yeah, yeah. So snow, family company, and I think a good book. And of course, you know we're going to scare ourselves witless with Mr. James stories. Absolutely, just to get right into the Christmas spirit. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody.